Welcome to the Podglomerate. I was a journal writer for very, very long. And usually when when teens or, or young adults ask me for advice, I always say, keep a journal. Just write everything down. You know, you learn your voice. You learn how to sit and write. You know, you get that muscle memory of, of having a, a regular practice of writing and if you're writing a journal. And I stand by all of that. But I actually think there's something to every week, once a week, sitting down and just putting voice to your words out loud to another person who's sort of neutral and is there to guide you but isn't going to judge you. It's a totally unique experience. I don't think there's anything you can really even compare it to. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And I feel like that welcome was specifically for me because I missed the last one we did of this. Yeah, and if our listeners will recall, it's been like, we had like a month before that where we didn't release anything. And we probably went a month since we recorded anything new before that. So Kyle, how has your vacation been? I mean, I gotta tell you, I don't know, it's not an official rule that we have, but I'm gonna make it one now. I like my summer breaks. I like having them. Uh, I'm gonna find a way to get a summer break at my job, even though it may mean getting fired from my job. But it was good. I had a good time. I read a lot of books, mostly fantasy. It's funny. I make fun of Kyle all the time for reading nothing but fantasy novels and science fiction and everything. And I I literally have done nothing for the last week and a half except read the N.K. Jemisin uh, Broken Earth trilogy. I'm already on the third book. I started it today. Which I recommended to you. I mean, it's like almost 2,000 pages when you get through the whole trilogy. And I'm already like halfway through the third one. Our listeners should definitely check it out. Tweet me about it at Jeff Umbro or at WWDW Podcast. Uh, I would really, really love to chat with everybody about it because I have, I have theories, I have thoughts, I have questions, <laughs> and my new goal is to get uh, Nora Jemison. NK stands for Nora. I don't know what the K stands for. Uh, onto the show. So hopefully you'll hear from her soon. So, but. Anywho, this week on the show, we interviewed Camille Perry, who we, well, I I shouldn't say this week. We actually did this interview like two months ago, but we talked to Camille Perry about her new book, When Katie Met Cassidy, which was published in mid-June of this year. And it's uh, it's a love story that happens to have two female characters as the uh, star-crossed lovers. I I really liked Camille's writing from her journalism. and I fell in love with the book. I thought it was fantastic. I love a good rom-com and this is a good, good, good rom-com. Yeah. It's uh and for background, she was a book reviewer for Cosmo and Esquire and uh, she certainly had a bunch of other places. She helped go straight YA books for this company called Alloy Entertainment. Uh, and you know, she's kind of done it all. This is actually her second book. Her first one is called The Assistance and came out about a year earlier. Uh, really cool concept for all the millennial listeners that we have. Uh, her boss took her, or she, the protagonist took her boss's expense account and paid off her student loans. Yeah, I was so. going to say, you're gonna have to, <laughs> Camille did not do this. The character in the novel that she wrote did this, which I very much enjoyed as a premise. I, I should I should clarify, but you can always assume that our writers are not the ones doing these ridiculous things, unless they are. But when Katie met Cassidy is great, uh, the assistants I haven't read yet, but I I read a couple chapters and it is also great. Uh, 
Camille is a really interesting writer. And if you Google her name, you'll see that this book was reviewed everywhere. Uh, and she gets into why and how. And uh, because she is a book reviewer, she did go into the writing of this thing with a little bit of kind of an angle in her mind. Um, but also, you know, she, she wanted to keep the artistic integrity alive of, of the stories that she was trying to tell. And she really digs into all of that during the interview. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Let's get to it. How did you become a writer? Who knows? Um, <laughs> that's a that's the million dollar question. Um, I always knew that I wanted to write. I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. Um, I mean, since I could hold a pen, I was constructing stories of some kind. I my my first real career was a librarian. Um, right after. My undergrad, I was an English major. I double majored in English and gender and sexuality studies. I went right on to get a master's in library science um, to become a librarian. And I worked as a librarian for a bunch of years while I was trying to really figure out how to write novels. Um, I thought being a librarian was a great job to have if your secret dream um, was to be a writer. And on, on, in some respects, I was right about that. And in other respects, I was wrong about that. Um, but it seems to have worked out. So... I've always wondered what library science is like. <laughs> I don't know what it's like now because a lot has changed since I was in library school. Um, uh, like I, I kind of can't even imagine what it's like now. Um, but like weirdly, I was in library school at a really strange time where like we, I mean, like we had the internet and there, but it was different. Um, it was not like the way that it is now. Um, so what I found actually being a librarian was a lot different from the stuff that drove me to be a librarian. Like I wanted to be surrounded by books all day and I wanted to recommend great stuff for people to read. And, um, and what it was instead was a lot of like oddly like social work where I was helping a lot of elderly people like who didn't know how to use a mouse or helping people like unclog the copy machine, you know, to get their <laughs> dime back. And like, so some of it was, um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of, um, there was a lot of homeless people or, you know, people who, you know, it, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of a very different kind of thing day in and day out that I think like you, like you sort of dream about. Um, the ideal was very different than the daily reality, which isn't to say I didn't enjoy it. I'm very glad that I was a librarian. Um, and I think I was actually good at that job, but um, at a certain point I did need a break from it. There was less time to write on the job than you thought there would be. You know, the, the time I was I was always good with time management. That was never really my problem. But I strangely felt that my world was was very small, and I was living and writing in a vacuum. I didn't really have, I didn't get an MFA or anything like that. I didn't have a writers group. I really didn't. I was working very very isolated, and so. What sort of took me out of that shell was I started um, looking for internships or other opportunities at literary magazines just to sort of like get in the room with other people who cared about writing um, in that same way or had aspirations to be a writer. So I started interning at, um, I did a, a readership at the Paris Review and then I was an intern at a now defunct literary magazine called Open City. And then that led me to an internship um, as the fiction intern at Esquire, which ended up leading to 
um, the job that took me away from being a librarian, which was um, I was offered a job at Esquire full time to be an editorial assistant and the assistant to the editor in chief. So that was sort of how I went from being a librarian to working in magazines. And then obviously my, the name of my first book is The Assistants, which um, I conceived of that idea for that novel while um, working as the assistant to the editor-in-chief of Esquire. So those are sort of the steps that led me to the publication of my first book. I, I worked in a bookstore when I was younger, and I feel like it informed a lot of, uh, you know, where I went beyond that. Uh, it was, to this day, the best job I ever had, but I feel like, you know, you can't really survive on eight twenty-five an hour. Uh <laughs> Not in that city, said, no. no, no, of course. And this, this was even in New Hampshire, but, uh, but in any case, you, you said you were an editorial assistant at Esquire, but, uh, did that eventually turn into, cause I, I believe you were the books editor there as well. Yeah, I, so I got my foot in the door at Esquire. Like I said, I was a fiction intern and, um, I, was done being a fiction intern there and I sort of left my resume and was like, Hey, if you guys like need, you know, freelance work or copy editing work or research, you know, I had a degree in library science, you know, I was sort of just, I sort of left that internship, um, hoping that in some capacity I would be invited back. And what ended up happening was the financial crisis of 2008 happened and magazines got hit really hard and a lot of layoffs happened at Hearst. Um, so a lot of people got laid off at Esquire. And what ended up happening was they needed someone to sort of do a few different, like do one job for like base salary that a bunch of other people had been doing for a lot more money. So when I became an editorial assistant, I also was David Granger's assistant, but I also was um, sort of doing what had been the fiction assistant's job, which was officially a job that had been dissolved. But I um, was helping uh, a senior editor named Tyler Cabot um, with all of the books stuff. So I really was working on books sort of behind the scenes. I wasn't the one making any decisions, um, like final decisions, but you know, I was the person who would put together the lists and keep track of what was coming out and what we should cover and what was, you know, you know, different ideas like that that I would sort of pass on to Tyler and then they would kind of move up the chain that way. Hmm. And what and what was that like? I mean, did it kind of inform like the decisions that you made when it came to writing your own books? Yeah, definitely. It, in a sense, it was really useful to see, like the sort of conversations that happen inside of an office when it comes to a story, or seeking out writers um, to cover. You know, it was interesting because it was Esquire, so there was always a certain, um, you know, type of writer that we were looking for, you know, you, you want people who match the voice of a magazine. And I think I kind of, in a way, I, st I started to understand the way that writing and writers, um, it's a, it's part of a bigger business, you know, there's a lot of other things that come into account, other than just, hey, this is a great story, you've got great talent, like, it, there's, there's a certain amount of timeliness that would have to come to the stuff that we covered. So if you were writing something that was maybe really great, but sort of didn't, um, didn't work or gel at all with what the magazine was doing at that particular time, 
it, it your story wouldn't fit in, you know. So I, I sort of learned to look to look at it larger picture, um, just understanding the way that um, editors at magazines like need to sort of fit things together in a certain way that has a lot more to do with timing and pegging certain ideas together um, in a way that like had never occurred to me as just a writer writing alone in a room. Um, it really made me start to think more about how the things that I was interested in wanted to say fit into the larger picture of what was happening socially and culturally and politically at this moment, you know, which I think was really valuable for me. Um, and I don't even think I realized I was learning that lesson while I was learning it, but now it's really clear that I can look back and understand that. While you're doing this job, you're also conceiving of the the storyline for your first novel, which you've described as sort of a Trojan horse in that sense where it's a nice slick package, but it's also containing that social message that you're describing now. Can you is that where that comes from, your ability to recognize all those issues at once? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um I I really, I, something sort of just clicked. Like I, I understood when I, when I conceived of the idea for the assistants, um, you know, which is about a group of, of young assistants who essentially use their billionaire media mogul boss's expense account to pay off their student loan debt. Um, like I knew the second I got the idea that it was a good idea. Like I just like, I just knew I could see it all like in front of me, like how, I could both say something important that I wanted to say, but also in, in a way that was like going to be a really fun, entertaining story. And I think prior to understanding that that was a good thing, I would have maybe been a little bit more precious about the idea of like art for art's sake, or this is the story that like my soul wants to tell. And I think like a lot of that got beaten out of me for better, or for better or worse. Like I just, I became a lot more, um, practical about it, uh, about the decisions that I made. So when I got the idea for the assistance, I definitely knew, okay, I want to address issues of what I see as the important stuff going on for me and my generation right now, the gender wage gap, student loan debt, um, you know, the, uh, in, income inequality. Um, but I'm not a nonfiction writer. I'm not even really a journalist. I didn't have any journalistic training. What I know how to do is craft stories. So um, it it just, it fit together for me in that way. So you have this billion dollar idea and what <laughs> happens next? So I got the idea for the assistance and I, I started writing it. Um, for The first drafts were very different than what ended up um, the published book you know, just to give you an idea, I, I, so I got the idea for the assistance in 2009, the hardcover of the book published in 2016. So that's how much time went by. Um, that said, I did, um, set it aside, um, for about probably about two years while I was, um, I had the opportunity to ghostwrite some young adult novels for, um, Alloy Entertainment, which sort of, they're like a book packager. They do a lot of teen series books. They did Gossip Girl, Vampire Diaries, Pretty Little Liars. Um, I was always interested in YA. When I, was a when I was a librarian, I had specialized in, in young adult librarianship. So I was very familiar with YA books. And I had been trying to write one for years before heading over to Esquire. While I was a librarian, it was always YA books I was trying to write. So 
when I got this opportunity to ghostwrite for Alloy, I took it. Um, so I left my full-time job at Esquire and I did a bunch of ghostwriting for them. And that was sort of like writing boot camp because what the way that worked was um, I was writing in another author's voice. And so I would get these outlines from Alloy and then have to write them very quickly. And the turnover would be really fast. And then I'd get all these edits um, and I had to do the edits really fast. And so I really learned how to not be precious about my writing at all and how to take edits and how to not take things personally and to not have my heart broken when uh, you, know, you spend all this time on this one idea. And then they're like, well, we're going to change that idea, you know, <laughs> and then you have to start all over again and throw it away. So I feel like I got like really good writing skills from the time that I spent at Alloy so that when I, when I took the assistance manuscript back out of the drawer, I was able to solve all the problems with it um, that weren't working structurally because I had a whole new idea of how to actually structure from the experience that I had with Alloy. Um, so I pretty much, um, yeah, so all those years went by and a lot of it felt like it wasn't, that nothing was happening on on the assistance manuscript, but even though it was sitting in the drawer, there were all, there were all of these things happening in my, in my creative life that, were, that, that enabled me to then go back and, and get it done the way that it needed to get done. How much would you say changed when you revisited the assistance after Alloy? Quite a bit. Uh, it's hard for me to remember now because it actually was a bunch of years ago. Um, for the most part, I think like like most first-time authors, I was trying to do too much with one book and it was a little bit all over the place. So I think what I figured out was that sometimes simpler is better, especially when it comes to structure. Um, I realized that once I understood how traditional plot structure works, I really enjoyed that. Like some writers, I think, find that limiting. Um, but what I realized was, um, I mean, what's funny is early versions of The Assistance, um, one of my early models for it was Fight Club. And it was a much angrier book in the beginning. And that's where the rules come from. Like there's, there's in the assistance, there are some rules. Um, and that had started as like a writing exercise that I ripped off of Fight Club. And then they ended up staying in the book. Um, but the moment that changed for me with the assistance was I, um, I realized that it was going to be funny as opposed to angry. <laughs> and um, I was watching, I, I had watched the movie Nine to Five and I realized, oh, wait a second. Like, this is going to be way more nine to five and much less Fight Club. And once I, fi once I figured that out, um, and I think my experience at Alloy opened me up to that idea in a way because I definitely wasn't, um, there was like zero like snobbiness or pretension left to me when it came to writing. Like, I definitely looked at it in this like much more populist way where I was like, I want to write this thing. I want to execute it perfectly. I want it to hit the mainstream. I, you know, like I knew I wanted to write a commercial book that had heart to it and value, but I was totally on board with writing something commercial. Like I had no qualms admitting that to anyone. I wanted this book to sell. Um, so I think Alloy kind of like got me there in a way. How did you like take that experience and roll that into your second book? Well, 
that's a good question. I, I, I knew from, so my second book is essentially, I call it a romantic comedy about gender and sexuality. Um, what I kept was I knew that um, I wanted to use a traditional plot structure. I wanted to use traditional romantic comedy plot structure with the twist of it being um, two women. So again, I was sort of taking something that was like a bit slick on the outside and Trojan horsing these ideas that I wanted to address about gender and sexuality on the inside. So that was the same. What was different was that I sort of, I knew that The Assistance was like an elevator pitch book. Like I could describe that book in one sentence to anyone. Um, and when Katie McCassidy wasn't necessarily going to be like that, I sort of felt like it was going to be a bit of a tougher sell. And I think the reason I could do it was I was riding, um, I was riding the momentum of my first book. And so I think I had a little bit of leverage to sort of write whatever book I wanted. And I always knew that I wanted to write a book about gender and sexuality. I, 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 I recognized that it wasn't like necessarily, a, <laughs> you called it a billion dollar idea before. I mean, I don't think anything was a billion dollar idea, but I, I knew when Katie McCassidy was kind of going to be a tougher sell. Um, but I was okay with that because I knew, I always knew that I really wanted to write a book like this. And this was my moment that I felt like I could kind of do it. So I took it, it took the shot. And who is the book for? What, I mean, Katie McCaskey? Yeah, is there like an intended audience? Well, that was sort of the magic trick I wanted to pull off with this book. Um, I knew that I wanted to write a book for queer readers, like, and and have there be a very masculine presenting female character, like one that I had never really seen um, in any book or movie or television show to this point. Like I, I knew that I wanted to create that and put that out there and get that out into the mainstream. However, I also knew that I wanted, in, in order to get this book to the mainstream, I really needed, I needed straight women particularly. I needed the assistance reader to reach for this book. And so I knew that I needed um, a touchstone character for them. So the book alternates point of view. It's in third person close. It alternates point of view between Katie and Cassidy. They're very different characters. Katie is, um, you know, a native New Yorker, uh, excuse me, a native from Kentucky. She's very traditional. She grew up with religion. And Cassidy is like the polar opposite. She's very masculine presenting. She's promiscuous. She's out and proud. Um, and so the fact that we get into both of these characters' heads depending on what personal experience you bring to this book, you may totally identify with Katie or you may totally identify with Cassie, but either way, you're going to get both of their experiences and hopefully come away with them both being empathetic uh, characters for you. So I, you know, I wanted this book to be for anyone, <laughs> um, which might be naive on my part, but no, I, mean, I, I think will you say did, this. You did achieve that. I mean, I, I, uh, nothing to do with with like the writing or the book or anything but you know just strictly based on the cover i never would have picked this book up uh but i read the whole thing in one sitting and i loved it oh that that means so much to me i i love hearing that and it, I, you know i feel like there's probably a limited number of of 
of men, especially cis cisgendered men who will who will reach for this book. Um, so I'm delighted when I hear that because that really means that that means a lot. Like that means I did something right. Yeah, no, I, I think you did a really great job, and and I don't mean that in the sense that like you know oh, I would never touch this book because of X, Y, and Z. It's literally just you know <laughs> not. It's just not something. I don't judge a book by its cover and all that, but it's just not something I typically would have picked up. But uh, totally, no. I mean, yeah. you're you're not the demo. You're, I mean, you're not the targeted demo, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're, you know, you're not like. I don't know much about you at all, but I could pretty much say that with, <laughs> with pretty much confidence that you're not the demo for this book. Um, so it's always good when it gets outside when it gets yeah. outside the demo a little bit. Sure. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like New York was, was the third character in this book or a th like another character in the book. Is that was that intentional? Was that like, did you want the setting to really just like inform the story? Yeah, yeah, I did. I both my books are very New York-y. Um, I was born in the Bronx. I grew up on Long Island. I've lived in Brooklyn since 2002. Um so part of that is just maybe I'm lazy and I like to like, it's harder for me to do research about another place. Um, although, I mean, there's, there's some, there's very little Kentucky in this book, but there's a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I love New York. I, I think it's, I don't know if I'll ever write a book um, that doesn't take place in New York because I am very comfortable writing about it. And I just think it's endlessly interesting. And what, what I like best about New York is that it's this like weird watering hole where like ev all of the strange animals from other places can come to gather to find one another, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's why it's so interesting. Like the, the fact that like, you know, New York city is, as Mayor Bloomberg once said, a luxury good city. Like that's not what's necessarily interesting to me about it. It's it's how like you meet so many different people with so many different stories and we can all relate in this one place. And I love that about New York. That's such a telling example from him that he would view New York as a luxury good city. I love the idea that it's a, a watering hole for weird animals that so much more. Yeah, I see it much more like that. I mean, whatever, Bloomberg did a fine job, but um yeah, I mean that's that not gonna have to like him as a person. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, no. You can be good at your job and still be bad. Absolutely. Um, so you thought this novel might be a harder sell. What was the process of selling the first novel like? And how did selling When Katie Met Cassidy differ from that? Well, you know, I think there's there's something really, really great about being a debut author. You Everybody only gets to be a debut author once. <laughs> and it's your it's like a big shot because no one you don't have a track record yet. So people are really interested. There will be special, you know, lists from whatever media sources, you know, debuts of 2018, new debut, you know, so people are getting to know you. They're interested in hearing your story. They're interested in giving you a chance. They're interested in, ooh, maybe I'm going to discover my new favorite book of this year, my new favorite writer for the next decade, you know, there's so much hope. Um, 
And I think any debut author really needs to like ride that out. Um, because what happens after your debut <laughs> is you have your second book, which everyone calls the sophomore slump, which <laughs> is just a totally different experience. And for me, you know, my first book did well, and that was that was great for me. And sensically, it should have made writing my second book easier, but instead I struggled like crazy writing the second book. Um, I was, you know, when you're writing your first book, you don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day. You know, you're just working on this thing, especially, you know, before you have outside validation, like before you score an agent or before you, you know, you sell it to, you know, you're just working alone. You really don't know like what's ever going to happen with this thing. So there's a certain freedom to that. Um, and so with my second book, I knew all along that this was going to go out into the world. And it was like a total mind fuck. Like <laughs> it really made it hard. I was, I was constantly self-editing while I was writing, which is just a terrible thing. Um, I was concerned about, um, you know, the gender and sexuality stuff. I, I come from a fairly conservative family. I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff in there that I knew my family and my extended family that was like, wow, Camille wrote a book. Like, they were all so proud. I knew they wouldn't feel that way about this one. Like, I knew that this one was going to make them a little bit uncomfortable. There's gay sex in it. They're not going to want to read it. Um, I still, I mean, my book's now been out. I gave like advanced copies to my family around Christmas time because Galleys came out in December and then the book came out in June. And now, you know, here we are weeks and weeks later. And like, I still don't know if, if any of my family members read it. <laughs> so um, that's a big difference. You know, that, that works against you because um, I think it makes you a little bit fearful or at least it did for me, but I, I'm in therapy. And so I worked through that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a, an appropriate place to, to talk about whether or not your family has read your book. Yeah. I think, I mean, honestly, that's... I'm joking, but I'm totally serious. The number one best thing I think any, any aspiring writer can do is, is go into therapy. I really do. I think it helps so much. It helps you. It helps you with a self-awareness that is going to improve your writing a great deal. I think. I mean, I think, I think therapy or I, w I also wonder like if anything that you believe is going to work, whether or not it's therapy or something like acupuncture or even Reiki to help you find your center. I feel like it's all equally valid though it does sound like therapy might be better if you're a writer to just help add an outside voice to the inside one that you spend so much time with i think so personally that's i i, I don't even i i don't think i'd be, i would have would have made it as a writer if i hadn't had talk therapy for so many years um i think there's something really useful i was a journal writer for very very long and usually when when teens or, or young adults ask me for advice, I always say, keep a journal, just write everything down. You know, you learn your voice, you learn how to sit and write, you know, you get that muscle memory of, of having a, a regular practice of writing. And if you're writing a journal and I stand by all of that, but I actually think there's something to like every week, once a week, sitting down and just putting your, your voice, like putting voice to your words out loud. Um, to another person who's sort of neutral and is there to guide you, but isn't going to judge you. 
is just it's a it's just totally it's a totally unique experience. I don't think there's anything you can really even compare it to. Well, I, I think that I, one of my questions for you is going to be like kind of how you deal with the the publicity side of things because you know with with your books in particular, you just get so much attention for them that I'm sure not all of it is good, and. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, it's just the reality of, of the beast. It's a good problem to have, I mean, for the most part. But I mean, is that something that like you find yourself like dealing with? Uh, like you mentioned that you're, you know, you speak to someone in therapy. Like, is that something that you talk about or do you kind of just ignore kind of like the outside perspective on all of that? I ignore it. I actually don't read any. Rev- I read. I don't read any comments or I don't go on, I'm not a member of Goodreads. I don't look at any of that stuff. Um, I just don't find it useful. I'm too sensitive. It will only hurt my feelings. I'll read like the stuff that's in like actual reviews that can't come out in, um, you know, media in the, in the lead up to, to a book coming out um, or, you know, magazine coverage or, or whatever. And with that, I feel like everyone's look like no one, loves everything and it's also not for everyone so that's fine that doesn't hurt my feelings at all um i think individuals can be extremely cruel in those comment sections and and whatever else um on amazon or goodreads or i i really am walled off from that i don't um i just don't look and i think i don't i don't know what that what that says about me but i sort of unless Unless I think criticism is going to be constructive, I don't want it. And by the time a book is out, too, it's like too late by then, you know? Like, I, 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 I take all my criticism while I'm still writing the book. Like, I can take hard criticism. Like, I want my readers to tell me, this isn't working, Camille. And I'll, and I'll go back and I'll fix it. But once that book is like a book, that's it. Like, it is what it is. You're not undoing yeah. it. Well, I think that's a healthy approach. But I mean, is there a situation that you've experienced where kind of like the narrative gets away from you? And it, like the book kind of belongs to the reader now as opposed to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that happens. But I think that's a good thing. I think that should happen. Um, I mean, in in all honesty, if I, if if like we were like living in a world like from 30 or 40 years ago when like writers could just be like kind of quiet and like living in the woods and just put their books out and like nobody really knows anything about them. I would love that. Like that would be my ideal. I loved ghostwriting for that reason. I am like not in it for the attention. I really struggle writing personal essays that you're always asked to write when you have a book come out. Um, I, it's part of the job of being a writer in this day and age, but it's not the part that I enjoy at all. Um, but the way the way things do get away from you is, you know, everyone always assumes that what you write is about you, and on some level it is because it came out of your it came out of your heart and mind. Um, but it's really interesting to see the ways that people interpret things in ways that aren't at all the way you intended them, but it's it's still valid because that's like that's what it is when you put a piece of you know art or media out there um everyone's interpretation is valid it's it is for them um 
you know, like even just former coworkers at at Esquire who are so sure that certain characters are based on them or, you know, I've got like ex-girlfriends who have, have texted me and, and are so sure that like some of my characters are based on them and when Katie McCassidy and it's just kind of funny. Um, you let people just think that because, you know, they're flattered by it or whatever. Um, but for the most part, like everything is a composite. So in that way, it sort of takes on a life of its own, but it's it's sort of just kind of fun to watch. It's interesting because like between that and therapy, those are pretty much the two Genesis fears of this podcast. I like know. One, <laughs> one that our family and our friends will read it and see themselves in the writing. And two, uh, that this voice you've been hearing in your head the whole time is just completely invalid. Well, I, I think the third piece of that is just like what we've learned from doing this show is just, and it's it sounds like it's a lesson you learned through all of your jobs is that you just have to actually do the work. Like at the end of the day, you know, if you can sit down and actually commit to writing something, that's that's the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I I think you you know, for for any of of your listeners who struggle with that, just get a thing done. Like just write it. Just write it and write it as ugly as you want to write it and as honest as you want to <laughs> write it. And then by the time like you have so many opportunities at the end to change stuff up, right? So like, just write it the way you want to write it, get your agent, get the book sold, and then that book's going to get edited again. And then you could go and change it where you're like, okay, wait a second. I'm really going to hurt my mother's feelings or I'm really going to hurt my sister's feelings if I keep this like this, right? So then you can change it at the last, you could change it at the last <laughs> stage, you know, if, if that bothers you. But you can't worry about that in the beginning because you'll just be a deer in headlights, mm-hmm. you know? You'll be paralyzed. Yes. You'll never get it done. Yeah. I do think this is a good, perfectly natural <laughs> transition to talk about the story that you C- struggled Camille, to tell. We're, we're, By the way, yeah, it never happens that cleanly. We are terrible <laughs> at transitions, if you couldn't tell. That was a great transition. <laughs> that was so smooth. That was so That slick. was such a good setup. I just have to take it. I always knew that I wanted to write a book with queer themes. I knew I wanted to write a quote-unquote gay book. Um, since I was really, really um, quite young. And I was trying to do that in a lot of different ways, um, as a YA book, as short stories, um, with different structures, and I could really never quite get it right. Um, I just, I couldn't figure out the right way to tell the story in a way that I felt like was getting across the things that I wanted to get across. And so I just put that stuff aside. You know, I was working at Esquire. I then got the idea for the assistance. It's, it, if things could have gone a different way when Katie McCassidy sh- should have probably been my first book, because it's the, it's the one that I, in a different form, had been thinking about for like half my life. Um, and so I, I put it aside and, and kind of forgot about it and then did this ghostwriting and then wrote the assistance and the assistance came out. And then, you know, the assistance was about to come out and, and my agent is like, well, okay, do you have another idea for a book? Because, you know, we should, we should try to sell your next book before the assistance comes out. Like whatever, there's all these strategies as to whatever. We don't even need to get into the, the politics of like when to submit your second book idea. But I had this idea and I was like, well, you know, I wrote up sort of what I wanted to do, um, and I didn't feel like it was ready at all. 
I didn't, I didn't know how to write this book. Um, but I, what I, they, they bought it on what I submitted. Uh, I submitted um, a pitch and outline and first three chapters and um, Putnam bought it. And then I threw all that away. And what ended up becoming the book was very different. <laughs> I think I struggled a lot writing when Katie met Cassidy because of um, the gender and sexuality stuff was very, very close to my heart. Um, and even though with the assistance, I knew, oh, people are going to think the boss is David Granger. People are going to think Tina Fontana is you, Camille. I, I knew that. I was fine with it. I was disconnected enough from it. Obviously, I didn't steal from my boss. It was fine. With Katie McCassidy, it's very different um, because particularly the stuff that um, Cassidy struggles with, with her gender identity, was a lot of stuff that I did struggle with, especially in my, in my younger years. Um, so that made it a lot more hard, um, to get past my, to kind of get out of my own way to get, to get the book written. And how, what, what were some of the, the ways that you dealt with those concerns in the moment? Like you're writing and you're getting to a part where you're either worried or you start rereading stuff you wrote. How do you get past that, that fear? Oh man, it was really hard. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. It was really, a lot of writing this book was like pulling out my own teeth. I really, really struggled. Um, you know, I have a wonderful wife um, and she would read chapters for me and she's a wonderful reader. She, she has nothing to do with books. She's a lawyer, but she's just very smart and she's a wonderful reader. And I think she could have easily been a professional book editor. She's so talented at it. She got me through it, honestly. I, I like if if all things were fair, I should probably give her co-writer credit on this book because she helped me <laughs> through it so much. I mean, from reading drafts and giving me honest feedback. Um, even when it was feedback I really didn't want to hear. But I know that when it comes from from her, that it's she only wants what's best for me. And she only and she understands me better than her and my therapist understand me better than anyone. So when they tell me something, I really listen, even if at first I don't want to believe it. Uh, you know, this is this is harder now because I have to go back and change this. But I, I always I always know that it's worth it at the end to put that work in. Um, so I just tried, I just tried to listen to the people that I trusted with this book more. I think with the with the assistance, I was sort of like, I know what this, I know what this is, I know what this is, I know what this is. And um, I didn't always trust my own instincts as much. I didn't always trust my own gut as much with this writing the second book, um, I think, because there was a lot of fear and anxiety. And to be perfectly honest, shame. Like, I think there was, there was shame that I had to be willing to write through um, in order to put this book out into the world and be okay with it and be okay with whatever the response was going to be, whether it bombed, whether my family stopped talking to me, <laughs> you know, whatever. And when you hit that last moment uh, before you sent it to your publisher or before you sent it to the printing press, were, were there things that you pulled back on? Were there parts that you went and said to yourself, actually, I think this is too much. I need to pull this out. Let me think about that. Um, 
There was stuff that I pulled out, but not for that reason, um, because I actually thought I wanted this book to be really structurally tight, and I thought that they were diversions. Um, and I, I'm not totally sure that I won't still use them. Um, I, I'm not sure yet. I, I, I feel very strongly that there's a lot more to tell. Um, the when Katie McCassidy characters, particularly some of the some of the secondary characters, like I, I, I do feel like there's a lot. That book kind of ends. Um, with a beginning in a way that it's not out of the realm of possibility that I would perhaps write a sequel or um, I don't know, maybe I might sell the screen rights and then we'll see where that goes. So I'm sort of leaving that up in the air, but anything that I took out, I didn't take out because I was afraid um, or ashamed. I took out um, for the right creative reasons. Um, So in the process, you conquered your fears. (laughs) <laughs> um, I was still afraid, uh, but I, I managed to live with that fear. Um, I will say this. I really had no idea what the response to this book was going to be. I've heard many horror stories about second books just totally, like, like no one cares. No one gives two shits about this book. No one reads it and no one covers it. And so I was fully prepared Um. I was fully prepared that this book was going to go out and literally no one, there was, you could hear a pin drop. Like no one was even going to care. No one was going to notice it. And it was just going to bomb. And maybe that would be the end of my career because I didn't have a contract for another book. And I, I was sort of like, well, we'll see what happens. Either way, I want this book to be out in the world and whatever it means, if it bombs, I'll figure out what my next thing will be. You know, I'll just figure it out when I get there. I was very shocked and surprised by all of the coverage that we got for this book. I did not anticipate it. We got amazing coverage. We were everywhere. I mean, the book was, and I think part of that was um, the wisdom of releasing the book in June, which is Pride Month. And this this harks back to my magazine, uh, what I was saying earlier about needing to peg things and have timeliness. I had suggested that the book come out in June because I knew that it was Pride Month and I knew that every media outlet would be looking for Pride Month stories. So, I think we got a lot of coverage because of that also, which was a, yeah, a good strategic Definitely move. doesn't hurt. Um, this was an episode of Writers Who Don't Write, brought to you by the Podglomerate Network. You can find more uh, episodes of Writers Who Don't Write wherever you listen to podcasts. We've had a ton of writers on here. Uh, Stephanie Dandler, Mark Manson, Lev Grossman, um, Ichabod Crane. Uh, <laughs> I just cracked myself up. Uh, Now, we've had like 75 writers on the show at this point. Uh, I'm sure that you can find somebody that you would enjoy listening to or somebody's book that you've read in the past. Uh, We are going to have another 75 writers on in the next, uh, you know, couple years. Hope you all enjoy it. Uh, If you do have recommendations of who we should bring on the show, tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us. We are at WWDW Podcast on all of the above. You can find more info from us at thepodglomerate.com where you can sign up for their newsletter. They handle all of our mailings and everything. Uh, they have a fancy new site. It is really cool. I'm saying they, it's me. I own the company. Uh, we have like 15 podcasts and we just launched a new one today called The History of Stand-Up, uh, which is the history of stand-up comedy from vaudeville to Netflix. It's with this guy, Wayne Fetterman, who is you know, the biggest bit character actor you've never heard of. It's a lot of fun. I think you would really love it. 
We want to thank Camille Perry for being on the show this week. Uh, she is the author of The Assistance and When Katie Met Cassidy, which you can find wherever you read books or wherever you buy books. Uh, you can find her on all the social medias. I don't think she has a website, but if you Google her name, you'll find like 100 articles about her. She's fantastic. You should reach out to her and let her know that you enjoyed the book and or the interview. Uh, we want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library for the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour. We also want to thank Ben Sound of bensound.com for the music that you heard in the middle of the episode. Uh, I want to thank my co-host Kyle for taking a break so I could not deal with him for a few months. And I want to thank N.K. Jemison for writing these fantastic books that I can't get enough of. We'll see you in two weeks. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.